What's the history of faith-based films and why do they have such a mixed reputation? We discuss this and more with special guest film critic Tyler Smith on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, fellow aspiring obnoxious intellectuals. Welcome to The Overthinkers. I'm your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, aspiring amateur chef who will one day cook a more than adequate chicken with broccoli. And here with me is my carnivorous co-host. I am Nathan Clarkson. I'm an actor, a filmmaker, and recently I've become a chef too and created Quarantine Stew. So yeah, I'm really getting into it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, with us today, we have a very special guest. He is a professional film critic, host of two podcasts, More Than One Lesson and Battleship Pretension, and the writer and director of a new documentary on Faith Life TV, Real Redemption, about the history of the American church and its relationship with Hollywood. He is the four, also the foremost expert on faith-based films who will actually return my calls. He is the terrific, the tender, the terrifying Tyler Smith. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Oh boy, yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Did I miss anything in your pedigree? Oh, no, you didn't. Uh, so listeners should should know that uh, that Joseph and I have known each other for a few years now, and uh, there's just a, there's a dynamic that I really appreciate, which is he, he arrives with a level of energy and enthusiasm that I cannot hope to live up to or, or match. Um, and, uh, and then when you, that's the thing is when it's, when it's like an intro in an introductions, uh, situation, uh, boy, it's like, it's both barrels. It's like, oh boy. I, it's like, you've really set me like the listeners can't possibly enjoy anything I'm going to say. after all of that. <laughs> oh, that's totally untrue. But, uh, thank you very much for the compliment. I think that you, was- you want to under promise and over deliver. <laughs> that's the key. Gosh, I, I, you have so much to teach me. Oh, so um, anyway, so yes, on to our topic of today, uh, faith-based films. Uh, faith-based films are a bigger conversation today than ever, uh, uh, and no wonder. Uh, no less than a BuzzFeed News published an article anticipating a world where faith-based films are fully mainstream. Uh, the Irwin Brothers' faith-based film, I Can Only Imagine, became the highest grossing independent film of 2018, and this year's, I still believe, was the first faith-based film to be shown in IMAX screens. However, most of the people talking about faith-based films or the history of faith's relationship with Hollywood don't speak about it from a real understanding of the history of faith-based films or how that history is driven by the American church's relationship to Hollywood. That is where Tyler Smith and his new documentary, Real Redemption, come in. Now, Tyler Smith, before we go into that history, I want to ask you about your own history with faith-based films. Nathan and I both grew up in traditional Christian families that watched faith-based films, which is why we both grew up to be normal, non-eccentric individuals, he said sarcastically. <laughs> the fact that our, uh, both, both of us, like most people our age who are you know, Christians, we had a mixed relationship with them because we loved the fact that faith was represented, but we didn't always like the quality or such. But it was nice to see a representation that wasn't you know, entirely hostile. Um, so what was your own introduction to the world of sort of faith-based films or faith in cinema? Did you grow up with them? Did you become aware of them before, after you sort of become educated in filmmaking, film history, etc.? So I was raised in the Nazarene denomination. Mm. And the reason that I mentioned that is because, uh, I discovered later on in life that a lot of my fellow Nazarenes were extremely uh, conservative, I don't mean politically, but extremely conservative when it came to engaging with entertainment, sure. uh, whether it be television or music or movies. Um, the Kind of the standard, like nothing rated R, maybe nothing PG-13. Right. And uh, I realized at that point, at that, at that point that I was, I was raised in what I call a very movie positive environment. My, yeah parents were really into movies. I had an older brother who introduced me to the movies that they wouldn't let me watch because, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't crazy. They, they weren't showing me everything. Um, and, and there was sort of that rule of like, well, you know, no, no rated R movies until you're a certain age or whatever. Yeah. But what, one thing that I'm very grateful for is that I, 
my parents were able to adapt when they saw who I was becoming as a movie hmm. fan. I think they realized like, okay, I think we can trust him with, with an R rating, honestly. So hmm. like I was interested in watching, uh, the, the, my go-to is a film that people actually don't know that much about though. It was a big movie at the time. It's from 1990. It's called reversal of fortune and it stars huh. Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close. Um, it's a great movie. I really love it. And so like, that was a movie I wanted to watch and it was rated R for some language. Uh, sure. but it's about Klaus von Bülow, who was found a true story. He was found guilty of attempting to murder his wife. And it's the sure. case that made Alan Dershowitz famous, you know, like at 15, that's the movie I wanted to watch. And I think my, <laughs> I think my parents realized like, okay, I think we can loosen things up a little bit. So, um, so I'm very grateful that I, I was introduced to just movies as art and then, and, right. uh, and just, a, just a general enthusiasm, or at least a, if nothing else, a lack of suspicion sure. of, of film, um, at an early age, uh, to such an extent that like, you know, then my parents were very enthusiastic about recommending movies. You know, I remember my dad recommended Chinatown after he mm. and I went to see LA confidential. Once again, mm. I was 15. And so so faith-based movies for me probably started, I know that they, there had been films released earlier than this, but I think for me, the first one that I was really aware of as far as people talking about it uh, in my church and around that was uh, The Omega Code, hmm. which came out in 1999. There was a novelty to it, the idea that, oh, well, this is like an action thriller that is Christian in nature. Right. And I think by by that time, either I think the Left Behind books had had kicked off. Um, and uh, so, of course, and we were approaching the year 2000. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, interest in end times type things. Sure. And so I saw it and I remember thinking it was not bad. Um but I was also fairly young and I had no real desire to watch it again. I thought it was yeah. a perfectly fine movie at best. Yeah. Um, and then I saw the left behind movie and thought like, this is not very good. <laughs> and then, then I watched a movie. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, I watched <laughs> a movie it. called be controversial. What? Oh, it's, you know what? This isn't even, this is not a film that is talked about very much. Um, but the people that made it uh, kind of run in the same circles as, as the three of us. Um, oh. <laughs> the, the, Come on, jump out here with us. <laughs> the film, well, it's, yeah, I mean, whatever. It doesn't matter to me, but uh, uh, it, the film is called Time Changer. Ah, and, yeah. Yep. I remember seeing that one. It was, it, I remember the buzz in my church was finally a movie that's, that's Hollywood level. That'll let Hollywood know that Christians are <laughs> that is how it was I, in my youth group. And you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember people saying like, oh, this is a movie I could take my friends to. And it's like, then either you don't know your friends or you don't know movies. And Nathan, I, 100%, there'd be, there are people that said like, like, ah, this is going to send a message to Hollywood. It's at that Hollywood level. And you watch it and you're just like, I don't think the people saying that have ever seen a Hollywood <laughs> movie, even a bad one. Um, <laughs> the movie uh, is about, and I, you know, I'm neither here nor there, there on this. I'll let Tyler take all the flack, but it's about a man, I guess, from the 1800s who comes to the modern day and is just aghast at, at the, the morallessness and the, the terrible uh, decline our culture is found in. Um, and, I can't even remember the end, but the, the premise of the movie is a guy being aghast at, the, at the, the terrible culture morally that we live in. And that's kind of the premise of the movie. So this is the movie that is going to tell Hollywood we're here, which I and think that's, And that's the thing is, so like what it is, the, the guy is a, he's an academic in the 1890s and he's trying to, he's entertaining the notion of teaching uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus philosophies without ascribing them to Jesus. And so like the Dean of his college who in his spare time built a time machine, uh, <laughs> as you do, as you do without anyone noticing I don't know about that guy, to be completely honest, <laughs> that is that to me. And he's played by Gavin McLeod from love boat. And it's not, not a bad, not a bad, not a bad performance. Pardon me. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, 
And so the idea is, okay, well, let's send you to the future where now people do believe that there is such a thing as morality, but it, because it doesn't, it can't be ascribed to any one person or any authority, uh, they throw it out pretty easily. So this is best uh, exemplified by, <laughs> I had to incorporate this clip into my documentary. Uh, our main character arrives, he, he, uh, he buys a hot dog from a local vendor and uh, he goes to a nearby park to eat it, but he sets it on a bench and kneels to pray over it. And then a little girl who looks like she just got out of Sunday service at church, like she's dressed impeccably. She's not like some Dickensian street urchin or whatever. Um, she grabs his hot dog and runs away. And then he runs after her and he goes, little girl, you've just <laughs> stolen my hot dog. And, you know, and, uh, and he says, you realize that stealing is a sin. And then she, as though she had read the script, said, <laughs> said like, who says? And it's like, oh, and he's aghast because, yes, who says that? Like, this girl knows the, moral relativism and how do you Exactly. <laughs> and it's just, it's the kind of thing where like, that was the first film. Because, yeah, I mean, Omega Code was, was not great, but, it, you know, it had its moments. Um, and then Left Behind was just sort of, you could see the budget uh, and the perform performances weren't awful. Um, it just was kind of clunky at times. This was the first one that I saw where I really got a sense of what we were up against. Yeah. Um, and the as far as, uh, yeah. And that's fairly early. That's like 2002. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we watched it, like in my church, I went to, again, at the, by this time, I'm, I'm uh, going to a, a small Nazarene church in Southern Missouri. And thankfully, I, at, at that church, nobody really had a problem with the fact that I was watching movies or that my parents were in favor of movie watching and all of that. Um, but there were, there were a couple of movies that we would watch, like at church, like we watched I think there was like a series of like there was like left behind it was called revelation i remember uh, jeff jeff fahey was in in one you of miss, them. you remember joshua the movie joshua i didn't see it but i know it yes yeah as a modern day jesus coming yeah and then i saw one called like called like road to redemption or something like that and oh. it was like a it was like a road comedy starring pat hingle who played commissioner gordon in the <laughs> tim burton batman movies and uh and, it, that, and it's like oh boy christian comedy <laughs> here we go uh, next the next frontier um yeah no, so, so that's my that's my earliest uh memory sure. is, is those movies that makes that makes a lot of sense um that's really cool that's well, that's really, that's actually a really good sort of um, transition to sort of one of my next points I want to make, because that's one of the things about Time Changer is it really leaned into that idea and particularly the hype around it, as you're saying, of the, the sort of war between Christians and Hollywood and like that there's this deep conflict that we need to, you know, about modern culture and, you know, that's influenced by Hollywood and we need to do faith-based films to sort of fight against that. And for many of us who grew up in, you know, Christian households, you know, that there even if like, you know, again, I had a, you know, more, uh, you know, movie positive experience than many others did, but still, you know, there's this, you know, cultural milieu of, you know, Hollywood is, you know, the, the godless Hollywood versus, you know, uh, Christian Christians and, you know, whether whatever side you're on, um, that's, that, that exists that people have talked about, but, um, your documentary, one of the big things about it pointed out is that that wasn't always the case. The, you know, uh, faith communities and and Hollywood were you know friends and then you know something happened and sort of broke that and changed the relationship and slowly turned into something where it was like this sort of big split so I was wondering if you could give sort of a the high points of that and what what you think are sort of the really the high sort of trigger points that that caused that sort of divide and and alienation to happen well to to describe Hollywood and the church as like friendly it, it was a very tenuous friendship because it was rooted in the fact that uh that the church um and i realized that that is a very big notion um it, when the uh the production code was implemented it was sort of spearheaded by the catholic church um by a, a, a an organization called the legion of decency which sounds somehow <laughs> terrifying <laughs> but uh but anyway so um <clears throat> So they put, they were worried in the 19, late in the 20s and 30s, they were worried about like immorality being peddled by Hollywood. And so they 
formed this this organization and put a lot of political pressure um, on Hollywood. And Hollywood, the studios said, okay, well, we don't want the government stepping in and telling us what we can and can't show. So we will self-govern. Um, we will put together a list of what was what were called the don'ts and be carefuls. Um, and a film will, we're not forcing anybody, but a film will have to abide by that if it wants to get any kind of distribution, if it wants to get greenlit. And so obviously no real profanity, no mm. sexuality, limited violence. And then of course there's the, the messaging as well, which is, you know, you get into the thirties and you had films like Public Enemy and mm -hmm. Little Caesar and Scarface, like these gangster movies in which these guys are, they're cool and they're tough, but we cannot, the, the, the Hayes Code, pardon me, the production code, which came to be known as the Hayes Code because it was led by a guy named Will Hayes. Anyway, uh, he, he said like, okay, well, we, we certainly don't want people coming away from the, these movies wanting to be these guys. Sure. So if you're going to make a gangster movie, they need to lose at the end. And so... Um, and then you can't make fun of the clergy. That goes without saying as well. Uh, so there are, all these, there are all these rules that Hollywood stuck with because they were afraid of government censorship as pressured by these various groups. And so that's kind of how things were for a while. And as external things would come in, like for example, World War II comes along and after it's done and people have a, full, a fuller understanding of the atrocities of the Holocaust, somehow the squeaky clean nature of, of Hollywood movies uh, didn't make a great deal of sense anymore. Sure. So you start to see in film noir, you start to see they're still, not ha they're still not being overt, but you start to see a fatalism there. Mm. And this suspicion of, you know, all of these movies are telling us that if we just follow the American, you know, if we pursue the American dream, we're going to be fine. Then you have these, these noir movies, which are extremely popular. And they suggest that like, no, you will not be fine. If you are ambitious, if you want something, you're going to, it, it will elude you and you'll probably wind up worse off. But then you also got a lot of um, sort of social, like social issue movies that came about in the forties. And so there was this tonal change where films were beginning to be a little bit more introspective and they would push the envelope a little bit and they would do quite well. And so Hollywood pushes that a little bit more and a little bit more. And then TV came along hmm. and TV really took it was going to take a chunk out of uh, the film business. And so it's like, okay, well, we need to really steer away from black and white because TVs are black and white, but if we're in color, we have something they don't. We're gonna go wide, you know, widescreen instead of the square screen. And then you get to the 1960s and it's, okay, enough of this production code thing because mm -hmm. TVs, because those actually are regulated by the government, we're not. So let's stop this self-regulation thing and let's come up with this rating system mm. so that, a film that does incorporate sexuality and profanity and violence that those can still be made, but we will, they, we will make it clear that they are for this audience as opposed to all audiences. Sure. And so, um, so I think that combined with in the sixties and seventies, Hollywood started making movies that appealed to a younger generation the the college generation, which is to say like, hippies and protesters and that right. sort of thing people that were that were not interested in the morality of their parents uh and hollywood is saying like we don't know how to appeal to these people so let's bring in a martin scorsese a francis ford coppola uh george lucas uh steven spielberg these younger guys and maybe they can make something that will appeal to this younger crowd and oh. so you start getting movies that are pretty edgy like taxi driver and bonnie and clyde and the wild bunch and by by the time you get to the 70s hollywood is now firmly uh, engaged in what you know the church would view as filthy and amoral and and i think they they started to feel i think they felt betrayed that like no we used to 
have a good relationship with Hollywood, but now because they were losing money and because they're trying to appeal to this audience, they've sure. abandoned us and now they're doing this whole other thing. And so I think it probably really started to solidify, that rift really started to solidify um, in, the, uh, in the 60s and 70s. Okay. That's interesting. Oh, and, and just real quick, I want to say it's interesting that you talk about the different markets and how the markets actually led some of the content and even a lot of the stories being made, uh, you know, and uh, I guess when the Hayes Code was implemented and this actually was mentioned in the show we talked about not too long ago in uh, Hollywood, they talked about the Hayes Code. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to see, you know, when you have this market and all of a sudden the films start shaping around the wants and desires and interests of this market, like you said, the younger crowd, the the hippies, the um, you know, whoever it is, the younger kids, the youths of those days, which is interesting to look at today and just take a look at the Christian market. And I both write books and make films um, for this Christian market. And what I've continually found and that a lot of producers slash publishers have told me is the main buying market. And this is almost in every, uh, this is across a lot of boards, but especially in the Christian market, the main buying market is 30 something moms. Yep. And which is really interesting. And now we have an entire industry that we call the faith-based film industry wrapped around one very particular market, one who's not going to be as accepting of sexuality or, humanity, yeah. uh, or even looking at a humanity in deeper lens because they do have younger kids in the house or whatever it might be. This is not a criticism against them, but it is an entire industry that we call the Christian film industry when maybe it should be called the Christian mom film industry so Christians can be freed up to go create films that might be towards younger Christians, millennial Christians, or towards whatever it is. But it is interesting to see how powerful a market is over the films that are being created, be that moms or being that the youth of you know the 1970s. But that is interesting um, uh, that, you, that you kind of pointed that out, and that's what we're seeing today as well in the Christian, quote-unquote, Christian film industry. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the most popular films to come out of Hollywood in the last, I'd say, 25 years, they all... Not all, obviously, that's not true, but the vast majority of them are geared towards the key demographic, which is men, like mm -hmm. 18 to 35, and even 35 might be pushing it a little bit. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's geared towards younger men. That's why you see stuff like comic book movies and action movies mm -hmm. doing so well. Right. Um, and so what is the opposite of that? Older uh, women, mm. you know? Um, yeah. And yeah, and mom specifically, as opposed to like single uh, young well, that's men. Interesting. So, in in when you think in terms of like counter programming, you really I, don't get any more counter than that. <laughs> what and it's interesting, real quick, just to think about how that will affect not only the quality but the message of our movie yeah. and right. what we're going to be saying. And so, Christians have kind of been recently relegated in the film world to saying things that will connect with moms when there's an entire. Joseph, you, uh, you and I have talked about this many times, yeah. you're in this, that there's an entire, we are people of faith, but we also want to see movies that reflect the questions, the experiences that, um, that we go through and ask and, and, and live out. But that's not something that we're kind of allowed to do because it is wrapped around one particular market and we, we simply fall out of that market. And unfortunately, the entire Christian film industry is being judged upon the movies it makes for one very specific market. And it's not Christians, it's Christian moms, which is very interesting to me. And it does speak to something that I find tremendously frustrating. I have to, you know, ever since I started getting a little bit more overtly involved with the Christian film industry, I've tried to soften my tone a bit. But um, one thing that you, you know, you start to encounter the same answers over and over again. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that will frustrate me immediately. And one of them is whenever somebody talks about like any, any Christian film and say, well, oh, this is something I can watch, you know, the whole family can watch. Mm -hmm. sure. And it's like, well, hang on now. Because something like Fireproof, for example, a movie that incidentally I don't like, but <laughs> it's a film that is appropriate for the whole family, which is to say there's no content in there that a younger kid could not watch. But does that mean that's a movie for the whole family? Oh, I think yeah. a lot of people get that mixed up. Like sure. just because there's no adult content doesn't mean it's not for adults. It's a movie about a marriage that is on its way out. What 
12 year old is interested in that, you know? And so right. I think there's such this emphasis on family and there's nothing wrong with that, but to, but to, to mix up content and like to mix up, I guess, sure, what can be seen as, as with appeal. Yeah. 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 And I think that's something that really frustrates me. I was, I was listening to a podcast with, uh, that was interviewing the head of uh, VidAngel. Mm. And uh, I, I am on record as, as just really hating VidAngel. Um, <laughs> well, the thoughts and words expressed by our guest are his and his alone, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so much I, tea being spilt here. Uh, I, have the, I, have the, I have the freedom to you know, <laughs> no, say please. what I want um, as I'm on the outside. But uh, no, but the thing is like one of the things when, when asked like, well, what do you do at VidAngel? He, I think his first answer was like, well, we make films, you know, we, we make it so that films are appropriate for the family. Mm. And when you think of what VidAngel is, which is it allows people to filter the content. And so, you know, you can watch Game of Thrones uh, without the nudity or whatever. And it's like, Game of Thrones was never meant for the family, ever, sure. ever. Yeah. Like you're gonna try and make it appropriate for an audience that it was never intended for. So they're certainly not gonna pick up on the various subtleties. Like, congratulations, you took out the violence and the sexuality. What a hero you are. Incidentally, the the nuances of the story and the characters uh, are are going to be lost. Like on on this audience that you're so desperate to 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 uh, engage with, and it just like. It, to me, it is the it's it's that attitude that that frustrates me to no end about um, Christian uh, filmmakers, Christian audiences, and I don't know. I, I try not to be a jerk about it, but it is something that I sometimes find disheartening. It's it's interesting because and Joseph, I want to get your thoughts on this too. Um, but you know, I may. I am a man of faith. I'm a Christian. I have no qualms with that. And I also am someone who makes films, who makes, um, you know, and I want these films to be beautiful. I want them to be human. I want them to connect to people like me. And I want, I want to portray characters who have been through dark periods of their life like I have. And for better, or for worse, my life living in New York as an actor, as just a young man in this modern world has been filled with sadness has been filled with people who curse and there there are there are r-rated scenes throughout my life and it seems that when i want to see my faith reflected in a film that can speak to those experiences that might provide hope or insight into those experiences the ones that i've had trouble uh, reconciling or working through and we, we look to art art is something that helps us reconcile and understand our experiences but when i look at christian art especially in those experiences i find and, and i don't mean this uh, i find nothing like literally nothing to speak to my experience as a man of faith who has gone through very R-rated life things. And that's, and I feel like most of us have, life is not rated PG. And of course I understand protecting our kids from things they aren't ready to understand yet, but we cannot base an entire industry around that because I do think we're doing a disservice to a lot of people out there who want to see faith reflected in the kind of experiences they experience uh, and they go through and they wrestle with, they want to see faith uh, reflected in R-rated situations of their lives because that's where the world is. It's not a perfect world. It doesn't look like fireproof where you can turn the computer so you don't know he's looking at porn or you can allude to things. We experience a very real and visceral, painful life and to take away all art that could have something to do with those experiences, I think does a disservice. And also as a filmmaker, when I sit down, and I hate this, but I have it, and when I sit down to write a script, I want to write an honest, authentic character. And the characters and people in my life, they have cursed. They have done things. They have drank. They have whatever it is. Uh, I have done those things. And when I'm sitting down to write an authentic character, one of the thoughts that immediately pops into my head is, yes, but you know the moms won't like this. And you know yeah. this would be make it harder to get distribution because the Christians won't accept it because it doesn't it's not safe for the whole family and i don't think that having a faith that's safe for the whole family is really truly effective to everyone but maybe a very small demographic and so i want to see and you know this is a fantasy of mine but i want to see really hard rough art that deals with these things 
in a faithful way that, that looks to faith for hope, but it deals with real circumstances that we all go through in an already world. And right now we just don't have the freedom to do that. And that would be my biggest complaint for the faith-based industry. Yeah, to your point, Nathan, I think it's really interesting what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the history of the faith and film industry. And one of the things we're seeing is how driven it is by audiences. You had a, you know, one audience at the beginning that was really concerned with, um, you know, morality and cer certain expression of Christian values and, and values that they shared. And when it stopped, when Hollywood seemed to be not doing that anymore for whatever reason, and for a variety of reasons, they started saying, okay, we, 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 we want them to stop this. And so we're going to, you know, get sort of political power to, uh, to, to get them to, to start reflecting what we, the values we want now. And then when demographics changed, that stopped. And they started, you know, Hollywood started to appeal to a different demographic. And now the faith-based film industry is, is based around sort of appealing to a different demographic, which is, you know, not, which is, you know, Christian moms, like we were saying, which is, which is a partly a Christian demographic, but partly just a different demographic uh, that's looking for counter-programming. And some of what they're looking for counter-programming from is Christian, of course, and some of what they're looking for counter-programming to is not Christian, but is sort of what appeals to young men, which is a fascinating thing. And so as, you know, young, you know, I mean, you know, Nathan and I, you know, you men, you know, young men who are saying, okay, we don't feel represented by this form of Christian filmmaking all the time. And I think that, you know, what's our, what's our place with that? If we want to tell our stories, because one of the things I, you know, note and I point out is that, sure, you know, I have a lot of friends who complain about the faith in film industry and it doesn't represent them, but the, and the, but they all say that they love first reformed, you know, but mm. none of them oh. went to see it. It yeah. was literally like, you know, it was behind in box office. It was behind the Christian film indivisible, which nobody's heard of. <laughs> um, and, and so it's like, I was like, okay, so it doesn't seem like maybe there's a group, I mean, there is a group that feels unrepresented, but for some reason they don't have, aren't have the same kind of desire and will to, um, you know, to make it a point to go to see these films and support these films because they are intersecting with uh, their faith and their, um, their, and their, and the fit love of film in that same way. Anyway, that's, that's something I, I struggle with, sort of as somebody who wants to make films that does reflect sort of my own life and my, what appeals to me. And, you know, to a certain degree, I, I have, you know, more family-friendly sensibilities than some others have. Um, but I still, you know, us a lot of my favorite films are R-rated films. And, and so I, I, I look at that. What is that, that going to mean? And I think that to a certain degree, anyway, it's also true. Like the churches, churches are majority female, you know, and so you know, that I think is a, a, just a, a question about sort of what modern faith in America looks like and what ways we can, as filmmakers, as film critics, change the conversation about um, what it would look like to uh, express faith in film and maybe even just become somebody with a good enough reputation to do that. But um, that's, uh, you know, something that I struggle with as well. Well, and it, yeah, and, and I want to, it's interesting to me, and Tyler, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. It's interesting, we talked, we touched on this a little earlier, about this um, mentality that much of the modern um, Christian, how do I say, industry, whether in publishing or music or film, has, just in art in general. And it's one of uh, an antagonism against secular culture. There's Christianity and there's secular culture, and we're at war. And it seems to me that many Christians don't know how or are just totally bewildered at the ineffectuality of faith in culture. And it usually comes down, they just don't care. They just want to, you know, sin all they want to and don't want to do what they want. And, and they go, how could, how could we, why are we not being effectual in culture? Why are our films about faith not being effectual in culture? And it's because I don't think we're allowed to be. I think if we actually did make films that spoke to people's experiences, the hard ones that actually showed humanity in its rawest, most real ways that, and, and accompanied that with faith, that we would start seeing um, faith be effectual to people. You see people drawn to a faith that steps into these dark situations and invites them to have hope or understanding or whatever it is. But I think a lot of the Christian industry is saying, no, we're not allowed to do those things or to explore those things or to even show or talk about these moments that many people experience. And so right there is a reason there's a rift 
between secular and Christian culture because Christian culture isn't allowing itself to actually touch on these real human moments. And the thing is, when I'm hurting, when I'm exploring life, when I'm, when I'm wondering what, a, what catharsis in a film, uh, maybe through something painful in my life, the unfortunate truth is I'm rarely going to a Christian film because Christian films rarely explore that. So I'm interested, Tyler, what you think about kind of this relationship between the quote-unquote Christians and the quote-unquote secular world and this kind of faux war we've been told we're against. We have to show Hollywood. We'll show them and that they're just out to get us. And I don't even think that Hollywood knows Christian films really exist maybe once or twice a year. But I'm interested to hear about what you think about that dichotomy and relationship. Yeah, I think a lot of it does boil down to, and it's hard not to sound rude when I say this, but a genuine lack of discernment uh, in the Christian audience uh, when it comes to art in general. The the number of people that I've heard use the term glorify, like, oh, well, we don't want to glorify this lifestyle, whatever that may be. Um, or they'll say, they'll see a movie and say, oh, well, that glorifies sin, that glorifies drug use or violence, whatever it is. And it's like, well, no, to simply depict something is not to glorify it. Now, there are, there is uh, some film theory out there that suggests that to depict something is to heighten it. And by simply putting it on screen, it makes it bigger than life and might make it look a little bit more appealing than it would otherwise. But, uh, there are films that genuinely do their best and filmmakers who genuinely do their best to show the ugliness of certain behavior and the ugliness of certain lifestyles. Um, and the way they do that is by fully indulging that lifestyle. I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is maybe the most anti-drug movie I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the way that it does that is by showing characters that are very, very, very on drugs. And... <laughs> and shows just how monstrous they can be. Mm. Um, I was just watching for the umpteenth time, I like to go back and rewatch uh, Siskel and Ebert reviews, and I was mm -hmm. watching their, yeah. their review of Goodfellas. And, ah, yes. And I remember Gene Siskel, they both said it was their favorite movie of 1990, and I remember Gene Siskel said that he viewed that as Scorsese is taking a moral stand yeah. against these these people like the the gangsters you know mm. where in the 1930s they were romanticized and then even mo movies like the godfather kind of play up a romanticized version of them and scorsese with goodfellas is saying like no this is what they are they are violent and selfish and regardless of what they might say about loyalty they are all in it for themselves right. there's well, really nothing good about them at all violence and it's not glorifying it yeah yeah, but that's the thing is I think I genuinely do believe that there are that there are Christians out there that would look at a movie like Goodfellas and because they are not this gets into another uh, thing because they're not media literate they're not able to discern that Scorsese is depicting this behavior so uh, like primarily so that he can denounce it right. that in order to show his uh, that he understands what these characters are doing uh, that he ne that he needs to engage in it uh, himself. You know, I remember speaking of Scorsese, when The Wolf of Wall Street came out, there are people that said like, well, this is a, you know, the, the fact that this is a comedy sort of makes, uh, creates a positive association with this character's reprehensible behavior. It's like, eh, I don't know, by the time he punches his wife in the stomach, I think it's safe to say, you're not supposed <laughs> to be on this guy's side, you yeah. know? Um, and yeah. It's one of those things that like, if when you see enough movies, there is there are choices that are made, not just writing, not just acting, but editorial, musical choices, cinematography choices that you develop an instinct for and you understand what the director is going for, even uh, instinctively before uh, intellectually. And yeah. when it comes right down to it, a lot of the, a lot of the Christians that are engaging with, um, with film in general, sorry, engaging, watching. They're just watching uh, the movies. And for them to depict anything is to, in its own way, glorify it. And context doesn't play into it. Nuance doesn't play into it. Uh, literacy doesn't play into it. It is literally a black and white. They're showing it and I'm not supposed to see it. So why would I watch this thing? And so I do think that a lot of this has to start with the audience. And when I go to ICFF and talk to people, I often feel quite encouraged by the end of it because 
there, there are people who, you know, year after year, they talk about how eager they are for a different type of Christian film, one that genuinely does reflect the grown-up, nuanced, complicated experiences that we all have as maturing Christians. Uh, so I always feel excited by that conversation, and yet I have yet to see it fully reflected in Christian culture. There are there are little moments of progress that I find encouraging, but I've yet to see a film that does it 100% right within the 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 confines of of Christian filmmaking. What are some of the moments that you have seen that would encourage you? That's that, a great question. Yeah. Within the within the Christian zeitgeist, the, the the Christian film zeitgeist, what are some of either the filmmakers, the films, or even a scene in which you've seen Christians say take a, a little step out of their comfort zone and actually explore what real life looks like and how faith might, you know, look uh, explored on film in that way. Do you, do you feel comfortable naming a couple of those? Absolutely. And I, I appreciate that you got very specific and said scenes because it does, it, it's usually that <laughs> it's, it's rarely an entire film. Um, but I do think that uh, breakthrough is a film that I talk about a lot. Yeah. Not because I gave, I wound up giving it a positive review on my website. It's not a perfect film. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the writing is a little bit clunky, and there are certain story developments that I think are really over the top. But for me, there are moments. It falls into the uh, the subgenre of, you know, the kid. The kid is sick and and uh, miraculously healed, right? Uh, kind of thing. Sure. And after that, and and so many movies will end. Well, it'll it'll take the 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 perspective of like, well, the kid is back and now the kid is is proselytizing and all that. Whereas in this situation, the kid comes back and he doesn't stop being a kid. He's still as awkward as he ever was. And what's more is other people are reacting to his miraculous uh, healing. Obviously, they know that they are that they should be happy for him. But there are some people who are genuinely wondering, well, why him and not this loved right. one that, that I lost, you know? Mm. And the film has the, the courage to say, I don't know. Right. Mm. And that is something, you know, I, I know I've lost people. Uh, I know other people that have been in, very, in a very rough situation. And yes, it would be easy for us to try to comfort them and say, well, God has a plan. But you know what? When the time comes and you lay down in a bed and your spouse is not there, either because maybe they left or maybe they passed away or whatever it is, uh, that provides only a, a small amount of comfort. And it's still a really vague answer. And so Abstract. the, the, the fact yeah. that the film says, I don't know, is something I really appreciate. But then also... And also with the, the its main character, she's a she's a mom who goes to a, a church, like in I believe in the Midwest, mm -hmm. and she's a bit of a busybody, and she likes control, and these are seen as flaws within her, mm. as opposed right. to so many other characters who are either pure flaws, like in um, Fireproof, or flawless. Uh, this is like oh no, these are very real character flaws um, that make her not always likable all the time. And so there's a lot going on in Breakthrough that I really like. There's plenty of stuff I don't, but I saw it as a step in the right direction. And then also, um, I didn't see I Still Believe, but I did see I Can, I can Only Imagine, which is about uh, you know the writing of a song that I don't like, but <laughs> and I think is extremely simplistic. Uh, I remember Bar Bart Millard, like, they really played up like, oh, he wrote this song in 20 minutes. Can you believe it? And uh, it's like, yeah, I can. A hundred percent. But the story is, very, is extremely well acted. And I also really like, yes, it still ends in a very positive way. But I, I do appreciate that there are moments where characters are trying to do the right thing. And then they fall back into... Uh, the, their previous mistakes, their previous sin. It's not simply they decide to go on the right path and they immediately are, you know? Um, so I appreciate, <laughs> ex yeah, exactly. Like it's, I appreciate that level of understanding that like, yeah, this is an ongoing process. Mm. And while I recognize you can't make it into a, a TV show, it still has to wrap up in two hours. To me, I, 
I like the idea that like, yeah, this is going to take work. Um, you know, it's, and I think you touched on something there a little bit too, that might be guiding a lot of what Christians make as far as film is we do have this mentality that we have to sell God a little Mm -hmm. PR guys and that we have to sell Christianity and faith to a terrible, unbelieving, immoral world. And the only way to do that is make it look like a really clean, easy pro- uh, product. And yeah. so a lot of our, our films end up ignoring any bad things, just like a salesman would do when they're, you know, have an object they're trying to sell. They'll ignore any weak spots, um, any questions, any doubt, and they'll go straight for, you say the prayer, your wife comes back, uh, the cancer disappears, and everything ends up okay. But yeah. the problem with this is we get the product, and then all of a sudden we find, oh, this product is faulty. God didn't heal me. And this is a whole other discussion for a, you know, a theology podcast, but I think <laughs> Christians have the idea that we have to sell God in our heart to an unbelieving world. And that if we explore too many of the, you know, the weak points or the things, the doubts, the questions, then we won't you know, win anybody. So we have to make our art very streamlined and uh, for the ultimate purpose of selling this Christianity and making the best product available. And I think that's having a detriment as well when it comes to creating art. Yeah, well, that's a pretty, sounds like as good a place to wrap up as any. Um, I'm sorry we didn't end on a more optimistic note, everyone, but these are fun discussions <laughs> we have, and it's not the end of the discussion either. Uh, you continue this discussion, and we hope to continue this discussion uh, further as we just are exploring ideas of, of we care about faith, we care about film, and how can we uh, do that in the most honest and uh, best, uh, best uh, and most God glorifying way possible, and what that looks like. Um, now we go into a segment that we uh, on the Overthinkers like to call our blesses and curses section, where we pick a piece of art, oftentimes a movie, but it doesn't have to be, that we want to bless, that we watched this week, we want to bless, or you know, recently, and or want to curse. Uh, we usually pick one, uh, one to bless and one to curse. And the guest is always allowed to uh, bring in their own, but they are not obligated to. Um, oh, gosh, hang on. Let me, let me, let me <laughs> well, plug my letterbox. Well, something, yeah. then uh, Nathan, uh, would you like to t- try uh, showing off yours? Absolutely. I have so many blesses and so many curses this week as far as narrow <laughs> it down to just uh, one of my favorites and, and one of my not-so-favorites this week. I've been going back through... Um, the show community hmm. and I have a me too and i just saw you in it yes it is <laughs> one of my very first roles i technically have a line uh, you can't hear it because the music is so loud but i'm very still very proud of this because it kind of kick-started me as an actor a, when i first uh, got to la and i and i ended up watching the show because i was in it and and by the way in, <laughs> such a narcissist oh my god literally two seconds in it but i've been going back through it and i love this show and you know, to kind of tie in what we talked about, this is a show that shows, and in a lighthearted way, in 20 minutes, obviously an episode, but it shows community, it shows relationship, it shows life, it shows struggle, it shows arc, and it does it in such an entertaining and kind of human way, even with all the jokes, that it just, it's been so comforting during this quarantine. I've been having yeah. a fun time. Remember um, community? I used to have community. Yeah, <laughs> people. Now I really, I've told Joseph, I want to go to community college. Enough <laughs> of the films and books, I'm going to community college. Um, uh, I, so I, I teach at a couple community colleges and uh, <laughs> it's, it's not like that. Don't tell me that. I was, I, I was trying to tell him I've been to community college. <laughs> <laughs> so now you have two people telling you that. Okay, so what's your curse? So this week, my not so favorite thing is I tried, it was one of the Netflix most watch documentary series. And since um, Tyler's here talking about his documentary, I thought I'd mention a documentary. Um, so it's called 100 Humans. And it's, you know, they have 100 yeah. humans who live in a place for, and they do all these social experiments to try to, you know, find out, you know, real things about humanity and what we really do and what do we really find beautiful and does it really matter if you do this? And you know, I wanted to like it because I love this kind of stuff, social science. Mm-hmm. And what I found is people walking in with preconceived notions, bending the tests so they get the results they want. And even the people who are hosting these are just a bunch of comedians. And I think people are taking it a little too seriously because it's, it, and it's just, it, it's always predictable because you always know what they want the result to be and they're always going to find themselves at the result. So it, it, I wanted it to be better than was, and it just wasn't great. So that is, th- those are my blessings and curses of the week. Joseph. I, my blessings and curse of the week, I just, well, you know, I don't know when you guys are going to get this podcast, but I just got a couple of movies that came out this year that dropped their prices, so I was able to rent them for much cheaper, 
and I watched uh, uh, Bloodshot and The Way Back. And they're going to be my blessing curse of the week. I'm going to actually give my bless to Bloodshot. I think it's maybe, you know, it's, it's among the best of how a movie can be when it's just trying to be an action film and not trying to be anything else. Mm. It's pretty close to, you know, Die Hard is obviously maybe the best, but like, you know, it's pretty close to as good as you can get where it's the acting is really good and the, the writing is really good not trying to be anything other than that, but skillfully doing that. And so I had a, a, I really needed something to have fun with and that was a blast. And it's always nice to be like, oh, like I can enjoy this because I'm not critiquing how badly it's done the whole time. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. And also there's a, there's a moment in there that's a, a real honesty that between the confrontation between the hero and the villain, where, where the villain, where you really, I get, you get to see, you know, the villain saying that, you know, you're the, I made the best version of you. And the reply, of the hero really says something very interesting. And I think they do a great job through the acting, representing sort of a modern uh, uh, conflict between the elites and sort of, you know, blue collar people um, that they really do a good job of doing without hitting over the head with it. So anyway, um, the way back I'll give is my curse, just because I know, you know, Gavin Wood is a good director and, and Ben Affleck, I like him as an actor but they really didn't do their best work in this. A lot of my problems with it, and a lot of the problems I have with faith-based films without actually being the benefit of being a honest-to-God faith-based film. Uh, and so, you know, just the, the kind of, you know, it, it's, of course, they tried to do hard stuff, but they did hard stuff in a way that I just couldn't engage with it or, 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 or doing a lot of telling rather than showing. Um, and so I know they can do better. I want them to do better. So I curse this one so to, to motivate them to do better because I know my point of view matters so much to them. <laughs> so <laughs> that's Tyler, why we started a podcast. Exactly. So Tyler, do you have a bless or curse you'd like to share? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> so okay, my my, I've got a couple of bl- blesses or blessings. How do you say it? <laughs> blessings. Blesses. You can do blesses. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so one is a film that's been around for a few years mm. and I only just now got to it. It is John Watts cop car. Mm. Um, John Watts would go that. on to, he would go on to make right. the last, the last two Spider-Man movies right. and uh, cop car is it's, it's such a delight. Uh, it, mm. it features these two young boys. They're probably like 11 or 12 and they're running away from home, but you also know they're absolutely going to be going back because <laughs> they brought, they brought nothing but a slim gym. And, uh, <laughs> but they happen across, uh, an abandoned cop car and the keys are in it. So they basically just take the cop car. And then we cut to, uh, Kevin Bacon, who's the local sheriff who is walking uh, to where he thought he left his cop car <laughs> and is trying to figure out what happened to it. And it turns out there's a body in the trunk because he's a bad cop. Uh, <laughs> and um, so it's about him trying to like hunt these kids down. And uh, it's very funny. There are long stretches of like quiet. It really does remind me. Wow. And this is something that'll happen with with filmmakers early in their career is that they will they will adopt a tone that you've seen from other filmmakers. So like if you watch sure. Cop Car, you will see a lot of Coen brothers in there. Sure. You'll see a lot of blood, simple, and uh, no country for old men and all that. So there's some really solid, very patient suspense, but also a really nice tongue-in-cheek sensibility. Uh, nice. So that's available on Netflix right now. Ooh. Another uh, bless is a film that actually won't be out for a couple of weeks. Ooh. It's called Judy and Punch. It stars uh, Mia Wasikowska and Damien Harriman, who just played Charles Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Mindhunter. Oh, that's right. And it's a very, it's a very strange movie. Uh, I'd say just go watch that trailer and see what you think. But yeah, um, I see the trailer. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's weird. It's a something of a miracle of a movie. I'm, I'm astonished that it was greenlit. Not because it's bad or even offensive, but I could imagine if I were a studio executive, <laughs> my, my instinct would be like, who is this for? Don't get me wrong. By far, many of the best movies ever are with that, yeah. uh, with made with that sensibility. So I appreciate it. And it's one of my favorite movies of the year. It's an Australian film. Wow. And it's uh, the debut film of uh, the debut, sorry, the directorial debut of a uh, of an actress named uh, Mira Folks. And uh, it's, it's really marvelous, Judy and Punch. So, and then as far as curses, 
Uh, I haven't seen a lot lately that I did not care for. I did, for reasons I can't quite figure out, watched, uh, I watched Zombieland Double Tap. Oh, I'm so <laughs> and, sorry. Uh, I, I remember liking the first one. And then when, I'd say this is not always true, but if if the sequel is made more than five years after the original, be suspicious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if there's, if it's, if the original is comedic, you know, in the case of something like aliens, then it's like, okay, well, the last one was kind of open-ended. We can continue this story organically and really develop this character. Whereas when it's something like Anchorman or Zombieland or something like that, that's, if you make it more than five years after that gives the jokes from the original time to work their way into culture. And then the sequel will have a great, there'll be a lot of pressure on it to pander to that instead of do uh, original things and add Mm -hmm. to the lore or the story. And that's definitely what Zombieland Double Tap does. Um, It has, it has its moments of course, but for the most part, uh, yeah, it's just such a swing and a miss for me. And I like the original. Oh, absolutely. Well, that is awesome. I had so much fun this time offending literally everybody. Uh, it's such a great, uh, this is such a great, uh, great podcast. Let me suggest this, if you'll pardon me. Ah, fine. The people <laughs> that we have, the people that we offended, let me put it, let me put this out there. They offended us first. <laughs> yeah. and I'm not even. I'm not even. I'm not even joking. They offend. They offend us by treating us like children. And uh, and telling us stories that are way too simplistic and uh, completely unchallenging. And unhuman. And inhuman. Oh, wow. That, thank you. I, this is exactly why I love you, Tyler. Thank you for coming <laughs> on. Um, how, where can people find you and what would you like to promote? Well, if they, uh, if they enjoyed this, um, which... <laughs> You never know. Um, (laughs) You can find me. I have a podcast that has been running for 13 years. It's called Battleship Pretension. You can find the battleshippretension.com. And then I have another show that I don't release that regularly. It's called More Than One Lesson. And that is film discussion from a Christian perspective. The most recent movie that I talk about on there is um, Bad Times at the El Royale, which Mm -hmm. is a movie I adore. I loved it. Um, Oh, it's so great. Uh, Drew uh, Goddard is doing some really interesting yeah. things as far as exploring faith. Yeah. Um, whether like, it be it with Daredevil or... Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. There, that's yeah. very cool. Yeah, Daredevil's great. Hey, go but, on. Uh, so, yeah, you can, you can find those at morethanonelesson.com, battleshippretension.com. Uh, and then there is my documentary, Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema, which is available at uh, faithlifetv.com you would need to subscribe to it uh but they do have a i I probably shouldn't say this but they do have a two-week free option so um (laughs) there's only an hour-long movie so come on guys it's uh, please it's 86 minutes i put a lot of time into this (laughs) Um, but uh but yeah so you can subscribe you can watch it hey you can even watch it a couple of times and then uh (laughs) you know you can duck out although for the most part uh, if that's what a free trial is for, if yeah. you like the rest of the stuff on there, keep the keep the subscription service. Yeah, and- I do also have a nine-part uh, series about film literacy on Faith Life TV. Called Which we Faith just and- said people needed. Yeah, so faithandfilmmaking.com. Not .com, what am I talking about? It's faithlifetv.com. Is the name of the thing. But anyway, so yeah, that's where you can find most of my stuff. Awesome. Um, and then incidentally, just because uh, my, due to current circumstances, my summer is pretty open now. Um, I'll say that uh, I do also, uh, I do script consultation. So, ah, yeah. uh, speci- and I specifically, though not exclusively, work with uh, Christian screenwriters to make their, their script as good as it can be. That's not, a good script is not the end uh, of, of the process. It's only the beginning, but uh if it's bad, then you, you definitely have an uphill battle to make that a good movie. So, and we already know you're going to be honest. And I will plug you this way too. Uh, Tyler is a fantastic speaker. So if you have a church or a school or a, 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 anything where you are talking about film and faith, 
please have him in. You will not be disappointed. He oh, does the you. whole thing behind, you know, with the pictures. So it's cool. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. He has a PowerPoint and everything. PowerPoint and everything. Yeah. So, so please call him if you're looking for somebody. Now, Nathan, would you plug your stuff and your place? Absolutely. You can find me on all the socials. Just search my name, Nathan Clarkson, and you can find me at NathanClarkson.me. And that's me. Awesome. And you can find me on all the socials as well. Just look at my name. Also, you can find me on my website, uh, josephholmestudios.com. And then if you want to talk to us and you want to tell us how wrong we are and just, you know, and uh, continue the conversation then and the overthinking, you can email us at therealoverthinkers.com. Hey, Joseph. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. You can continue plugging things. But is it, okay, is it okay if I get the last word? You, it's fine for you to get the last word. I have my tagline at the end. Do you mind if I do my tagline at the end? Yeah, that's fine. Fine. Okay, go ahead and do your thing. I'm excited for this. So purely by coincidence, uh, I happened to tweet something the other day that had to do with the concept of overthinking. Uh, oh. It had nothing to do with my being on this show. It was just a separate thing. <laughs> and um, so what I will say is uh, in the spirit of, of being honest and and hopefully encouraging, there is no such thing as overthinking, mm. um, especially when it comes to art. Uh, put as much thought into something, and if you feel like oh, I think I'm reaching a little bit, maybe you are, but it just means that you are engaging with the film as much as you can. I think there's plenty of underthinking going on, but there's no such thing as overthinking. Well, mm. I have to say that is certainly on brand for us. So thank you everybody for joining us. And until next time, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about. Thanks for listening.